Hello, this is Pastor Ken from Alabaster House, and you're listening to the Alabaster House podcast. It's our desire to see every believer equipped with the tools for living and expressing the kingdom of God in the world around them. Be sure to join us online at alabasterhousechurch.com. You can find us at Alabaster House PA on Facebook. And be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast. Also, leave a review if you can. This helps us out in the ratings. We greatly appreciate you listening, and we trust that you will be encouraged and equipped by the Word of God today. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 3. This Sunday, today, and next Sunday... We're going to focus on the Holy Spirit leading up to our September 11th evening at 630. Uh, We felt impressed to go hard and heavy on the Holy Spirit, seeing uh, God do things in the lives of people in our community and feeling like the Lord is wanting to do something here. We wanted to set a night aside to focus specifically on not just the Holy Spirit, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit specifically. Uh, So today and next Sunday, we're going to kind of try to set the stage a little bit and do some teaching and preparation work in order uh, to see the Holy Spirit move in our midst that night. So I want to encourage you. Uh, mark it on your calendar, September 11th, 6.30. It's not about attracting a crowd of people. I don't care if there's three people here, to be honest with you. It's about allowing the Holy Spirit to move in our lives, receive more from Him, and go, uh, go deeper with the Lord. So that's what's going to happen. <clears throat> so we can't have softball next Sunday night because of that. So we will try to do it the following uh, Sunday night. Uh, So three weeks from now, I have to let my leg heal up from my very dramatic slide into home base that was so close. But people said, they were asking me, were you safe or out? I don't, you can't call your own play. How many of you know? Like, I was just going with what the majority of the people said. All right. So my, my thought was, if more people say that I was safe than out, then I was safe. Now, it doesn't matter because my team still lost. So... Not by much, two points. We had a big rally there at the end. Andy had some nice home run hits out in the outfield there, and uh, Stewart decided not to come and help me, so that's why I lost. <laughs> if I would have had Stewart, I would have won. <clears throat> but we did have a good time. All right, are you ready? I'm kind of excited. I've got lots of time, so I'm just going to preach long and hard. Matthew chapter 3 and verse number 4. This is introduction to John the Baptist, who Jesus described as being the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. Jesus also said that he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John, giving us a transition in the, uh, between the Old and the New Covenant. That in the new covenant, spirit believers are filled with the Holy Spirit. We have something that John the Baptist could have only dreamed of. And that is the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And John knew this. 
and he's about to explain it in a sense to the Pharisees. And in verse number four, it says, Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than me, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather wheat into his barn and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. <laughs> unquenchable fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And the fire of the Holy Spirit is, as John describes, an unquenchable fire that burns up the chaff. Now, from an Old Testament perspective, we'll look at some of these verses here in a moment, but usually when fire was called down from heaven, it was a sign of judgment. It wasn't a good day for those who the fire came upon. But we are transitioning into a new covenant. John is an old covenant prophet who's preaching out of an old covenant mindset and to the Pharisees it is judgment to the Pharisees it is a sign of wrath to the Pharisees it is a sign that they need to repent come to repentance bear fruit worthy of repentance if you don't bear fruit your tree will be chopped down and it will be thrown into the fire but on this side of the new covenant we understand fire in a different context you know, fire for the believer, it either burns up or it empowers. Fire for the New Testament believer is a sign that God wants to purify you. Not that God is coming to judge you or to wrath you, but that God sees things in your life, just as Christus spoke today. God sees things in our life that doesn't belong that doesn't need to stay, that shouldn't be there, and it's not always sin. Sometimes, like we said, it's just worry, regret, fear, shame, guilt, condemnation, abandonment, rejection, all of those things. And none of those things belong in the life of a Spirit-filled believer. So what does the Holy Spirit do? He comes with His unquenchable fire to burn up the chaff out of your life. This is not an eternal punishment of hell. This is the Holy Spirit coming with his purifying fire and applying it to your life. To the Pharisees, this was bad news because they're in an old covenant. 
But to us who are in the new covenant, it's good news. That, that Jesus, as John said, is going to come and he's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Not just in the Holy Spirit, but he's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. When you're saved, when salvation comes, when you accept Christ into your life, when you give him your life, the Holy Spirit comes and resides in you as a child of God. Amen? But there's a difference between the Holy Spirit coming and living inside of you and you being baptized into the Holy Spirit. When you're saved, the Holy Spirit comes into you, but when you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, you enter into Him. Just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in a sense, entered into the fiery furnace. They were in the midst of the fire. But because no fault was found in them, Jesus himself comes and manifests in the midst of that fire. Fire in the Old Testament is also meant to purify, purifying silver, purifying gold, putting those elements to the fire so that the impurities rise to the surface and they can be skimmed off, leaving a pure, precious metal. It's one thing to be have the Holy Spirit in you, it's another thing to be in the Holy Spirit. To enter into the fire of the Holy Spirit and allow that fire to purify, to sanctify, to justify, and all the other things that the Holy Spirit does in our life. It's interesting to me because being grown up in church and being a pastor for a number of years, you know, you come in contact with a lot of people and certainly it's not a position of judgment or looking at people's lives and trying to judge or analyze. But I've just noticed over the course of many years coming in contact with many different people that many profess to have the Holy Spirit. And I believe that that's true, that they do have the Holy Spirit in their life. But then there's these things, these attachments in their life. These things that are weighing them down, these things that are slowing them down, these things that they're struggling with. And I believe that we need to come to the place as spirit-filled believers where we willingly subject our lives to the fire of the Holy Spirit in order to allow Him to bring purity into our life. In Genesis chapter 14... This is the first time in Scripture, it's in uh, Genesis 19, actually, but the story begins in Genesis 14. This is the first time in Scripture where we see the fire of God coming from heaven. And you'll recognize the story in the city. It is the city of Sodom and the city of Gomorrah. And oftentimes when we think of Sodom and Gomorrah, we think of the judgment of God, right? Brimstone and fire, fire and brimstone. I've met people that say, I like my pastor, he preaches fire and brimstone. <laughs> I don't even know what brimstone is. I mean, <laughs> no, no, much less know how to preach on it, okay? <clears throat> so I am not a fire and brimstone preacher, I don't think. I've met a few and they kind of scare me, to be honest with you. <clears throat> 
Well, this is where we get this concept of even we've talked at length over the course of the last few years about does God judge nations and does God send fire and earthquakes and hurricanes and all of those things. And the reason that we believe that is because it's actually in the Bible. James and John, the sons of thunder, said to Jesus on one occasion, Jesus, let us call down fire from heaven on the cities that rejected you. And where did they get that idea? They got it from Scripture. They got it from the life of Elijah, most likely. And Jesus looks at them and he says, you don't know what spirit you're of, right? And John chapter 3 and verse 16 tells us that God so loved the world. But John chapter 3 and verse 17, Jesus says, I did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that through me the world might be saved. Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin brings a reproach. The wages of sin is death. God doesn't have to do anything. The wages of sin itself brings destruction. It brings death. It brings a reproach. It brings a curse. But Jesus came to set us free from the wages of sin and death and to break us free from the curse of sin and death. And the Old Testament is types and shadows. It gives us glimpses. It gives us pictures even of Jesus. For instance, in the book of Genesis, you see Abraham who's in this story. And God says to Abraham a few chapters after this, take your son, your only son, and take him up to the mountain and there sacrifice him, your only son. Now, God's God is not into human sacrifice, right? I remember years ago, I had a guy in our church, and he was all into this, uh, remember 2012, the Mayan calendar, do you guys remember that? Just one more thing on top of the list of thousands of things. We're going to have another blood moon here, and I'm sure somebody is already in the middle of writing a book, and I can promise you something, that when the blood moons come and the blood moons go, we will still be here. Not a lot of amens on that, but that's a prophetic word, and you can hold me accountable to it. <laughs> the mind calendar. And this man's a Christian. He comes to me. He comes to our church. He comes to me. Pastor, the world's going to end this year. It's ending. It's like, yeah, ever since 1988, that's all I've been hearing about is the world's going to end. And you don't know what that means. 88 reasons why in 88. It was a book that came out in 1988. 88 reasons why in 1988. And there was 88 reasons. And when 1988 came and went, they revised the book and titled it 89 reasons why in 89. And they were wrong. And he comes to me, Mayan ruins, the, the Mayans, they had this calendar, it ends on 2012, we're all going to, it's, it's over, the world's going to end. Do you know the Bible actually teaches us the world never ends? God creates it all new, brand new. There's no end to the world. There is no end to the world. The new earth, a new heavens, brand new. <laughs> Getting off on a rabbit trail here, but here we go got to finish this story real quick. He comes to me, he's like, the mind said the world's going to end in 2012. Well, as you know, 2012 came and went. But I looked back at him and I, he, and I, said, I said this, it's, it, it's not right. It's, it's, it's not a prophecy. It's a bunch of 
garbage. And he looks back at me and he says, well, how do you know that God didn't speak to them that the world was going to end in 2012? And it didn't take me very long to come up with an answer because Chris and I have been to the Mayan ruins and we heard the stories of how they would take their children to the cliffs and throw them off the cliffs into the ocean and sacrifice their own children. God does not speak to wicked men. And that's how we knew. And in the same sense, God wasn't calling Abraham to literally kill his own son. We know that because God provided the lamb, the sacrifice. God's not pleased with human sacrifice and God wasn't asking Abraham to kill his son in that sense. He was asking for his obedience. But when Abraham is obedient to bring his son to the altar and hold the knife in his hand, God provides in that moment. And that's where we get the scripture, Jehovah Jireh, my provider. But God in that story was giving us a picture of what it would look like for God himself to sacrifice his only son. You understand, it's a type and a shadow. It is a type of Christ that we find in the Old Testament. And here in Genesis chapter 14, we're about to see another type of Christ. But there's more to this story of Sodom and Gomorrah that I want you to understand. In Genesis chapter uh, 14, in verse number 8, it says, The king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and three other kings went out and joined together in the battle uh, in the valley of Siddim. And then there's a bunch of names here, but basically there's five other kings that are their enemies. And the Bible even tells us four kings against five. In other words, Sodom and Gomorrah were already outnumbered. Now this is before the destruction of the city. In fact, years before the destruction of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And here they are on the battlefield Four against five. And the Bible tells us in the next few verses that there were asphalt pits there in verse number 10. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there and the remainder fled to the mountains. And then they took, which is the enemies, the ones that they battled against. They took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and their provisions and went their way. And they also took Lot, Abraham's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, and they departed. And then one escaped and told Abraham, the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth tree, uh, whatever, in verse 14. Now when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit to Dan. Now, this is incredible, and the reason why it's incredible, think about this, is that Sodom and Gomorrah, those two cities, along with two other cities, were battling against five, and they were wiped out. They were completely defeated. Now, we don't know how many soldiers these other cities had, but they had enough soldiers to utterly destroy and defeat four other cities. And now Abraham hears about what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah and these other two cities, along with Lot, that Lot was taken prisoner. All of his goods are taken captive. Everything that he has is taken away from him. And Abraham has a little over 300 men, trained servants, and he says, come on guys, we're going after them. 
It's like my softball team the last two times. Just outnumbered. Can't get past it. But we don't know how many people Abraham had, or, or, or I should say the other side had, but I can only imagine it was probably thousands, if not tens of thousands. And here Abraham takes his 315 servants and he goes and pursues them. And he divided his forces against them by night and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hoab, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. In verse 17, and the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the king's valley after his return from the defeat I practiced this word all morning and I'm not going to try it now. And the kings who were with him. Kador, La, Omer. That's how you say it. It doesn't look like that, but that's how you say it. And the point of my story is to show you that Abraham had already had an encounter with the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah before we get to the destruction of that city. Now follow me. The Bible says in the New Testament that it is the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. Amen? Amen. It's not His wrath. It's not His judgment. It is the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. God is not slow concerning His promise, but He is patient, not desiring that any should perish. That's the Word of God. And here we have a story from Genesis chapter 14 where the most wicked city is involved. And they go out and fight these other kings. They are destroyed. The other kings take all of the people, all of their possessions. They're going to enslave them. And Abraham hears about it. And as a man of God, a righteous man of God, he's not going to sit back and do nothing. He's going to take his 315 men and go out and fight against them. And when he goes out to battle them, Abraham easily overtakes them, easily defeats them, and then brings back all of the people of Sodom and all of the goods of Sodom that were stolen away. Are you with me? And then in the very next passage of Scripture, the book of Hebrews describes Jesus as a priest of the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a priest. We have no record of his past, and we have no record of his future. Melchizedek, which is the only place in, this past, in the Old Testament where he's mentioned, only one time in the New Testament referring to Jesus as a priest in the order of Melchizedek, Melchizedek just steps right in to this story. We don't know who he is. We don't know where he came from. We don't know how old he is. We don't know anything about him other than he's a priest. And he comes and presents himself to Abraham. It says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, which means the city of peace, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him, blessed Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and be blessed be and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands 
And then Abraham gave him a tenth of all that he had obtained when he defeated these other kings. Now I want you to notice verse number 21. Look at what it says. Now the king of Sodom said to Abraham, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. In other words, Abraham is here. The king of Sodom is here. And Jesus steps right into the story. Come on, the most wicked city in all of the Old Testament just had a face-to-face encounter, if we can say it this way, with Jesus. Abraham, who in this story is the man of God, just went out and rescued these wicked kings' possessions and people and brought them back. Come on, the blessing that was resting upon Abraham has now just been imparted to the people of Sodom. Come on, we talked about it a few weeks ago. If an unsaved believer can sanctify an entire household, then what can a church do for its city? And Abraham shows us exactly what it does. That the man of God, the righteous man of God, the man whose blessing of God is resting upon, goes out with his 315 men and defeats these other kings and brings back all that the enemy had stolen. All of it. Brings it back and then Jesus Himself steps right into the face of the king of Sodom and blesses Abraham in front of it. Come on, the king of Sodom was there. It tells us before. In verse 17, and it tells us after in verse 21, there he is. And Abraham gives a tenth of all that he had obtained to the priest Melchizedek. And Sodom is there, the king of Sodom is there. And they have a, con- they have a conversation in verse number 22 Abraham said to the king of Sodom I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high the possessor of heaven and earth that I will not take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap and that I will not take anything that is yours lest you should say I have made Abraham rich except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with them let them take their portion And the point is, is that the king of Sodom sees Melchizedek bless Abraham. The king of Sodom sees firsthand the blessing of God that's resting upon this man, Abraham. And Abraham even declares to him, I'm not going to take anything from you because I want you to know that everything that I receive is the blessing that's resting on my life from God, the Most High. Now, it's only a few chapters later, Genesis chapter 19. In chapter 18, God comes to Abraham. It's only a short time later. God comes to Abraham face to face, and God says, should I tell Abraham what it is that I'm about to do? And God tells Abraham, the wickedness of this city has come up before me, and I'm going to utterly destroy it. And Abraham, as you know the story, asks God, God, would you save the city for the sake of 50 righteous men? And the conversation ensues and 
At the end, Abraham says, will you save it for at least the sake of ten? And God agrees, yes, for the sake of ten righteous people, I will save the city. In other words, the blessing and favor of God that was resting, would have rested upon those ten people, would have been transferred over to the city so that the entire city would have been saved because of the ten righteous men that would have been there. The sad part is, not even ten were there. But there was one, and his name was Lot. I hope that I'm painting this picture for you clear enough because what I'm trying to show you is that yes, Sodom and Gomorrah is known for the fire and the brimstone of God raining down upon it and utterly destroying it. But the pathway there was not as quick and as easy as you might think. The pathway there had an encounter with Jesus face to face. The pathway there led them to a man named Abraham who was blessed by God, highly favored, and they witnessed it with their own eyes. What I'm trying to show you is that this wicked city had an opportunity to repent. In fact, God gave them multiple opportunities. It wasn't one day God's just sitting up in heaven and looking down and saying, oh, this is, this is awful, i got to stop this, and goes down that same moment and just destroys it. No, there was a pathway. Come on, you don't just die in your sin in one day. You don't just become an addict in one day. You don't just become an alcoholic. You don't just become addicted to lust in one day. It is something that happens over a period of time. And if you don't allow it to stop, and I believe that God puts a lot of roadblocks there and a lot of stop signs and a lot of warnings. He did it for Sodom. We ignore that part of the story because we like the fire and brimstone. Oh, look at those wicked people. God's just going to come down and wipe them off the planet. That's not God. Come on, Jesus himself in the form of Melchizedek is standing before the very king of Sodom. How did the king of Sodom not see? How did he not see? How did he not take this message back to his people that Abraham himself just freed? Say, if you really want freedom, if you really want protection, if you really want deliverance, then let's serve the God of Abraham. It's not the only place in the Bible, you guys. There's another city that was called Nineveh. And God said the very same thing about Nineveh. Their wickedness has come up before me. Jonah, I want you to go and preach to them because if they don't repent, I'm going to have to destroy it because the wages of sin is death. And you know the story, Jonah. Jonah was mad. Listen, Jonah did not flee God because he wasn't a preacher. Jonah didn't flee God because he wasn't a prophet. Jonah fleed God because Jonah was mad at God that God was sending him to people that he didn't want to preach to. That he knew deserved death. He knew deserved judgment. Jonah wanted to preach to Jewish people. He wanted to preach to Israel. That's who he was. That's every Old Testament prophet always preached to Israel except for Jonah. Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. I'm not going, God. I'm not going. Have you ever had that conversation with God? Oh, yeah. Listen, God always wins. Just don't even do it. I've just, just don't do it. You'll wind up in the belly of a fish. 
And then you'll have to repent, and then the fish will throw you up on the sand, and then you'll stink, and your skin will be all bleached, and it's just not a pretty sight. I mean, it's no wonder those Ninevites were like, yes, we repent, we, just stop, pre- please, we repent. Whatever you say, we're done, we repent. <laughs> there, there was a man, I think it was in the 60s or 70s, that was swallowed by a whale and, and survived, and his skin was bleached because of the stomach acid. And the Bible says it was a fish, which I have, I have to believe it was a fish, not necessarily a whale, but whatever it was, Jonah was in there for three days, and the effects of that whale would have lasted the rest of his life. So avoid the stomach of the fish and just say yes. But you see, there's other cities in the Bible, so we have to compare Sodom to Nineveh. We have to make a comparison, and the comparison is this. When Jonah goes to Nineveh and preaches to them, they, they put on sackcloth and ashes. The Bible even says even their animals were made to fast. And they repent. God forgive us. And the mercy and the grace of God comes upon, listen, in the Old Testament, comes upon a group of people that he doesn't even call his own. But they repented. Sodom's problem is they came face to face with Melchizedek. They come face to face with Jesus. And yet they go their own way and they continue in their own sin. And then even Lot is there. I think my theory is, is that if Lot would have not moved into Sodom. The attention of God may have never been drawn there. Come on, how many other wicked cities were there in the world? God had already destroyed the world one time and saved Noah. And it's not too long after that that we find sin. I mean, even Noah comes off the boat, gets drunk, and a whole lot of bad stuff happens. It's not very long after the flood that sin enters right back into the world. How many other cities could there possibly have been where wickedness was abounding because they didn't know God? But here comes Lot. Not the most righteous man but at least somewhat righteous, and he steps foot into that city, and all of a sudden the attention and the attraction of God is there because there's Lot, a man of righteousness. And I don't think that Lot was silent in his days there because in chapter 19 and verse 9, as the men, those wicked men of the city are threatening, they want to have sex with angels, they want to defile Lot's house, And Lot speaks up in verse number 9. The angels said, stand back. Then they said, this one came to stay here. And he keeps acting as judge. They're talking about Lot. This righteous man came into our city and all he wants to do is just keep judging us. (laughs) This wasn't the only time that Lot ever spoke up. Look at what they say. All he wants to do is judge us. I wonder if Lot was a little bit like Jonah, went into that city and said, hey guys, listen, look at what God did. Look at what God did on the battlefield with Abraham. Look at how he saved us. Look at, look at the blessing and how he restored us and gave us back our children and all of the things that we had. Look at what God did. I don't know if Lot ever said that, but it just occurs to me that if he keeps acting as judge, then Lot was probably saying something that offended them. Oh, you can't do that nowadays, can you? Sheesh. And every time you do say something, they want to throw it. You know, they say the same thing that the 
Sodomites did. Don't judge us. You're not supposed to judge. Do you know that the Bible says, Jesus said, judge with righteous judgment. We keep throwing out the scripture. Jesus said, don't judge. No, he didn't. He said, don't look at your brother's eye and point out the speck in his eye when you've got a post hanging out of yours. That's what Jesus said. So the, 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 and the point of the story is get rid of the post so you can help your brother with his speck. Can't judge, can't say anything. I mean, come on, if we are in a society where you cannot say anything. I don't agree with homosexuality, and I never will. I don't agree with the LGBTQ whatever, and I never will. I asked a question back in the 90s. I was born in 74, so in the 90s I was old enough to understand things, and that's when... Clinton was president and they wanted to legalize gay marriage. And I asked the question, if we do this, where does it end? Where does it end? And the simple answer is, it doesn't. And that's why this week I'm reading an article in Breitbart News where a man who is a pedophile wants the LGBTQ to open up to people who he calls suffer with my... uh, Minor attraction. (laughs) Listen, I've got news for you. I'll be honest with you. So honest. If you want to be gay, be gay. Hey, have at it. I have no skin in the game. I'm not going to... Fine. But man, when you start targeting kids, I'm going to have a big problem. And if it's one of my kids, you're going to have a big problem. When you have what you call my minor attraction, don't give it a name. It's a demon. <laughs> and quit giving yourself over to it. Jeez. What are we coming to? It, it will be in there one day. God help us. And here's the city of Sodom and Gomorrah that we're not allowed to preach about anymore. (laughs) But I want to show you, and hopefully I already have, that these people had an opportunity to repent over and over and over and over again. And the only difference between them and Nineveh is that Nineveh repented and they did not. And so the fire of God comes, the brimstone and the fire. Lord, teach me how to preach brimstone and fire one of these days. Just once. I want to do it just once. Be a mean preacher like James. James is a mean preacher. The book of James. Martin Luther wanted to remove it from the book. (laughs) He did. And see, the point of the story, the type and the shadow that we should extract from the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is that it is not that God wanted to or even desired to destroy a wicked city. It's that God gave them opportunity and they refused. They refused. And so the fire comes. Lot is saved. His wife turns back, looks at 
turns into a pillar of salt. But Lot is spared. Lot's families saved. And the fire of God comes. And what does it do? It destroys the sin. It destroys the effect of sin. Even the effect of sin that Lot himself was a recipient of. Come on, Lot himself, because of the wickedness of the city, had the wickedness of the city at his front door. But when the fire of God comes, purity comes. And it purifies the life of Lot. This is what the fire of God does. The fire of God purifies. I'm not going to turn there for time's sake, but in Exodus chapter 3 is the next time that we read about the fire of God. And the next time we read about the fire of God is when Moses is on the backside of the desert trying to figure out who he is, trying to discover his identity. Remember, he grew up in Pharaoh's house. He, he murdered one of Pharaoh's guards because he was beating an Egyptian, uh, a Hebrew slave. And so Moses flees for his life and he's on the backside of the desert herding sheep that aren't even his own, doesn't have a clue as to what he was called to. His own name signifies his identity. Moses means to be drawn out. And there on the backside of the desert, we read the story of what we call the burning bush. And it says an angel of the Lord was there with the flame of God upon the bush. And Moses sees the bush and he notices he notices that the bush is burning, but it is not consumed. In other words, it's not destroyed. Come on, that's the Holy Spirit in your life. He wants to burn. He's not there to destroy. He is there to consume, and He wants to consume every part of your heart and your being and your soul. And when, when Moses encounters the burning bush, God begins to speak to him about his destiny and his identity. Telling him who he is and what he's called to do. Come on, I remember like it was yesterday growing up. I was 16 years old, went to a youth camp in Illinois. And there I was sitting in the back somewhere and they're praying and, 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 and praying for the Holy Spirit to come. And I remember and I grew up in a Pentecostal church. I'd heard tongues my whole life. I told you about my grandfather when I was little. Heard tongues my whole life, and I'm standing all the way back there in the back. Nobody's praying for me. I'm just standing there. It's just me and the Lord. I got my hands lifted up, and I'm singing this song, and all of a sudden, these words start coming out of my mouth. I didn't even, I knew what it was, but I didn't realize what I was doing. It just bubbled up out of me. And I went up to the front. My youth pastor was up there. His name was Rick Barnes. Some of you know him. I went up there. And I told him, I said, I just want to give my life to Jesus. I had already done that, but as a 16-year-old, I was just surrendering even more. And I remember when Pastor Barnes laid his hands on me, whew, then it came. The fire came. See, there's a difference between the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, it's one and the same, two different functions. The Holy Spirit comes to sanctify us, to cleanse us, to lead us into righteousness, to lead us into holiness. But when you step into the fire, it purifies. It gives you direction. It gives you identity. 
It tells you what your purpose is because it's burning off everything that doesn't belong. And can I say something today? Because there, there are some that are skeptical about the Holy Spirit. There are some that are skeptical about tongues and all of these strange manifestations of the Holy Spirit. And I understand we usually, we usually reject what we don't understand. And I can tell you this, you'll never understand it. It's supernatural. That's why we call it supernatural. It's beyond natural. And people try to reason, well, these gifts died out with the last apostles. And when Peter stands up at the crowd of, in Acts chapter 2, he says, this promise is for you, your children, and all who are far off. It's never going to stop. It's never going to end. But we allow people and religion and doctrine and theology to infiltrate our mind and be taught to us things that are in error. And what happens is we build strongholds in our mind against what the Holy Spirit wants to do in us. So in reality, what we're doing is we're resisting the fire. In fact, one preacher not too long ago wrote a book called Strange Fire. All the reasons why everything that we've ever experienced in spirit-filled, charismatic churches are wrong. It's all strange fire. Smith Wigglesworth says, A man cannot truly be a man unless he's filled, baptized in the Holy Spirit. We don't believe that you have to be baptized in the Holy Spirit to be saved. That's a salvation experience all in itself. But once you're saved, you have the ability to open up yourself to the fire of the Holy Spirit. To allow the fire of the Holy Spirit to come purify, sanctify, give you identity, give you purpose. Elijah is on top of the mountain of Mount Car- Carmel, however you say it. And there the prophets of Baal are there and he's challenged them. To a face-off, if your God is really God, then let him answer by fire. But if my God's really God, then he's going to answer by fire. The children of Israel had prostituted themselves to the gods of Baal. They had given their hearts over to other gods. And now here stands a man full of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's upon him. He's a righteous man preaching righteousness. And Elijah Ask God to send fire from heaven. It's the next place in Scripture where we read about the fire of heaven coming. And he prays a simple prayer. God, let these people know that you are God. And he says, and turn their hearts back to you. And when he prays that prayer, the fire of God comes from heaven, consumes the water, consumes the altar, consumes the sacrifice, licks it all up, the Bible says. And in that moment, the children of Israel's hearts are turned back to God. It comes through the fire of God. And I could say that after 16 years old and even having that encounter, there was a season in my life where I was running from God. I was like Jonah and I was in the belly of the fish and I did stink. And there's no amount of preaching, there's no amount of nagging, there's no amount of pointing a finger that can get somebody like that to come back to God. I promise. But there is one thing. There is one thing. And that is when the fire of God comes. See, the people of Israel weren't asking for it. Elijah was. Elijah was. But it came 
And when it comes, they experience it and their hearts are turned back to God. You want to pray a prayer for your lost family member? Pray for the fire of God to come. Pray for the Holy Spirit and fire to come and consume their hearts. Sometimes only God can get through when we've done all that we know to do. And just a short while after Elijah experiences the fire of God, I'm wrapping up. We come in contact with Elijah, Elisha. God had told Elijah to go and place his mantle on Elisha. And he goes and he puts his mantle on Elisha. And Elisha looks back at Elijah and says, can I go and kiss my mother and father goodbye? And I love what Elijah says. He says, don't you know what I just did to you? Which is my favorite part of the story. But what does Elisha do? He's plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. That's his life. It's his livelihood. It's his occupation. It's everything that he knows. His family has probably, probably been doing that for generations. Come on, he was not a prophet. He was a stinky guy, a farmer. And all day long, all he does is follow the butts of those oxen. What kind of life is that? But that was his life, stepping in their manure, plowing fields, out in the heat. And Elijah comes and places his mantle upon him. And everything that Elisha has up to that moment, what does he do? He takes the oxen. He takes the yokes. He creates an altar. And he puts it all right there. All of his life. All of his livelihood. All of his expectation. All of his heart. All of his soul is placed upon the altar. And what does Elisha do? Elisha doesn't call for the fire of heaven. Elisha creates the fire on his own. You see, in the kingdom of God, there are times when God sends his fire and it is glorious. But I also believe that there are times where we ourselves set the fire And allow the Lord to come and consume everything that we've placed there on the altar. It's one thing for God to send His fire. And demand, if you will, a reaction. It's another thing when we set the fire and ask God for a reaction. In Acts chapter 2, Jesus tells His disciples, I want you to tarry in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And from that day that Jesus spoke until the day of Pentecost, those believers gather in that upper room and they do what Jesus asked them to do. They wait. They tarry. They are obedient. In a sense, yes, the tongues of fire and the, and the mighty rushing wind come into that room, but in a sense, those believers through their obedience were already setting a spark to the fire that the Holy Spirit wanted to produce in their life. Fire comes through obedience. Don't let it come through disobedience. That's not the fire you want. Fire comes through obedience. Fire comes upon sacrifice. Fire comes when we take our life, as Paul said in the New Testament, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, pure and holy, pleasing to God. 